This week on Writers, Inc. So that's a very literary kind of, of fiction. The sentences are elegant and long, like Henry James's. And my writing tends to be almost purely contemporary. And I don't, I mean, sometimes I write a whole novel set in the 19th century, but th these are all contemporary stories. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. All right, Mr. Barker, I think congrats are in order again. Uh, another New York Times bestseller. Way to go, man. It's not number one, man. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I, I just, I, I knew it wouldn't be like when I saw the, the list of the other people coming out. Um, and it's funny because I sent Kristen a, an email um, where I, I summed up what I figured the top five on the, the Times list would be. And, and I was I was pretty close, but it ended up being um, Stephen King held number one. Um, which that, that book is just doing insanely well. And I, I pulled the stats um, on, on the, his first week out and he sold just a little shy of 100,000 copies in the first week. Um, as soon as I knew that, I knew that we had zero shot of getting that number one spot away from him because we, you know, we sold a decent amount, but like that, that's a whole other you know universe of, of sales right there. Uh, so he held number one. Preston and Child came out with a new Pendergrass novel, um, you know, that's number 20, I think, in the series. So like that's a tough beat too. Um, last time I was up against... Um, Oh God, I can't remember the guy who writes Dresden Files. Um, but it, there, there was Butcher? a new, yeah, yeah. I think there was a new one in that series. So like that one would you know beat us out. Um, and Daniel Steele took the number three spot. Tough to, to beat her out. Um, and we we jumped in at number four. You know, so I, it, fantastic to be there. Um, and, and Richard Chismar, by the way, like he hit the list too for the very first time, all on his own. Without you know, he, he's been on there before, but it was a, a book penned with Stephen King. So this is his first time out of the gate, you know, on his own in, on that list. So so that was awesome. Um, so yeah, so next time <laughs> I'm going to get that number one, one of these days, I swear. You'll get it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the plan. Just got to pick a different week. Um, some other news that I just, I kind of found, um, I got an email from Bookbrush right before we jumped on. Um, we were talking about a plus contact on a uh, context on an Amazon. Um, and Bookbrush has templates now to, to help create that. So I, I haven't looked at it yet. I just, I saw the email right before we jumped on the air, but that's very promising. Cause that's going to at least help people like me out that, you know, just don't have a whole lot of time and suck at graphic design to, to at least be able to get something up there. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention, and, and this is kind of a little bit out of left field, but HWA has a, a financial assistance program for authors. Um, it doesn't get talked about a whole lot. Um, but, you know, right now in times of COVID, there's a lot of people that are really struggling with things like rent or just putting food on the table, things, you know, any anything at all. They've got a program to actually help with that. Um, so if you're an HWA member and you're having any kind of trouble, you know, head over to their website and just take a look. I, I wanted to mention that because I, I don't hear it talked about anywhere. Nice. So. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's great when the, when these professional trade unions organizations can kind of step up and help help members. It it uh, I've, I don't feel as bad writing that check for dues when I know that they're doing this kind of stuff for us. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's nice to know that the money's going somewhere and, and helping other people out for sure. 
I wanted to uh, give a quick uh, shout out to Zach, who prematurely congratulated me. On, I was going to say something. House. I feel I feel so relieved now that I've been. Uh, I'm off the hook. You, you are, yes. I'm off the hook. I'm so happy. Yes, the wire transfer landed yesterday, so it's done. And uh, and thank you, Zach, uh, for not jinxing it. Hey, you're welcome. Believe me, I was going to feel really crappy if uh, we came on here and you were like on the street somewhere or something or, you know, still, uh, obviously still in your old house. But uh, I'm glad to see your uh, your new background there. It looks very lush. <laughs> I was just going to comment on that. Like it's totally laid out. It looks absolutely perfect. You've got all these books behind you. You've got a plant that looks like it's been there for like the last 10 years growing. Like is that the only spot in the house right now that's actually like unpacked and decorated or or – or, or the, the whole house look like that? You know, you know what? We're, we're pretty good. Uh, we've been back six days, and, and so we've made it through most of the boxes, and we have closets put together. Uh, the, the only thing we have left are, like, you know, the pictures. That's, that's usually last, right? Like the pictures and little decorations and stuff. But other than that, we're moved in. Uh, we, we got Brady to Portland safe and sound, so he, he's in classes. We're in our new place, and... Uh, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm finally sort of back into somewhat of a writing routine and business routine, so it feels good. So, are you? Um, what's your setup there? Like, do you have a? <clears throat> excuse me, do you have a dedicated office? Like, did you guys get a three bedroom? So you have a dedicated office, or what's what's up with that? No, no we didn't. Um, and and the the reason why I wasn't too concerned about it is uh, the only child we have at home now is 16. Yeah. So she, she's not really an issue. And most of my work is done during the day and, and the place is empty. So I kind of have the, the dining room area of, of the living space as my office. And I think it's going to, I think it'll work out for the next couple of years until uh, Brennan graduates. And then we, we take off for wherever. Right on. All right, so so I, I can't stop looking at the plant. Is it real? <laughs> <laughs> because right, because now now I'm going to be watching it every week and I'm to see whether or not you're keeping that thing alive. Yeah, I I, I hope you're not jinxing my plant because in, <laughs> in my attic I had a number of plants and this hardy son of a gun was the only one that survived, the only one I didn't kill. Uh, so I brought it with me and it is real and uh, and I've had it for a couple of years. So um, hopefully it'll it'll continue to to grow. Uh, if it doesn't, JD, it's your fault. My wife doesn't allow me anywhere near the plants. I, I bought, um, yeah, I, I'm constantly spraying like weed killer out here just to keep, keep the na mother nature at bay. Um, but I got tired of pumping the, you know, the canister to, you know, to, to spray it out. So I, I bought a battery operated one, um, which was awesome. Like I, and I ran all over our yard and like sprayed absolutely everything, you know, like two weeks ago. And now if you look out there, like half of our yard is dead because <laughs> I went so far overboard with, <laughs> with this thing. So my wife took it away and I'm no longer allowed anywhere near the plants. So I, I will live vicariously through yours. Well, that sounds like the genesis of a, of another horror novel. So maybe maybe we'll just leave that one there. <laughs> maybe. Maybe that's the one that's going to hit number one. There you go. Perfect. Well, I have a good friend who's like a plant expert. So if you need help keeping that thing alive, maybe I can have her give you some tips. All right. Uh, so far, so good. Let's just hope it, it survives the move. <laughs> All right, so we All should right. probably talk publishing stuff, right? Let, let's do that. Let's. Uh, do, you, do you have some publishing news, J.D.? No, that, that was it. That was pretty okay. much my, my week. Um, ITW does have critique groups coming out, and I, I tried to get a link for that that we could put in the show notes, but it's it's not available yet. Um, but they're going to basically help people, you know, pair up with, with other people that are kind of in the same position, you know, writing-wise, career-wise, um, to help, you know, create virtual critique groups. So I think that might be useful, for, especially now with everybody kind of still in lockdown at home. Cool. All right. 
Uh, one, one sort of quick uh, word of note. Uh, we are just a few weeks, few weeks away from the Career Author Summit. All three of us are going to be there. We are going to be doing a live recording of the Writers, Inc. podcast. Uh, so we'll have some more details on that coming up, but just want to mention that. So if we're in your feed, look forward to it. Uh, yeah, I don't want to say any more about it. I have, I have something I haven't even talked to you guys about yet that I want to mention. Oh, boy. But, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll wait on that. But it will be a live recording from the summit. We also want to give a nice big shout out to one of our summit sponsors, as well as the podcast sponsor, which would be Kobo Writing Life. So Kobo Writing Life is awesome. Uh, they give you simple tools to publish your book in all countries. Uh, there's no exclusivity. You have monthly promotional opportunities. If you are not publishing wide yet, head on over to KoboWritingLife.com and set up your account today. We also want to give a nice shout out to our newest patron, Arne F. Gerlach. I'm gonna. I hope I did that justice. I hope that's the correct, uh, correct pronunciation. Uh, we appreciate that your support. Uh, and if you want to become a patron of the show and be able to submit questions for our monthly Q&A episode, head on over to patreon.com slash writers inc podcast. And that takes us to our guest uh, for this week's episode. JD, who is coming up? All right. So this one's going to be fun. We've got kind of a, a living legend, Joyce Carol Oates. Um, she's been around uh, in the, the writing world for a very long time. Her first novel was published in 1966. She's got 58 books out there at, um, at last count, and that may be off. Um, I, I, I summed up what I could find. Um, she's won a, a ridiculous number of awards. She's even been up for the Pulitzer. Um, so it's going to be really cool just to get some insight into, into her career and where she thinks that we're, we're all heading. So here she is, Joyce Carol Oates. So I'm uh, excited to talk about Night Neon. I, I finished it last night, and uh, it was just a great, great collection. Can you tell the listeners um, about this anthology that you just released? Well, it does have a focus on women's experiences. Sometimes the experiences uh, veer toward nightmare, um, a sense almost of losing control of one's own identity and one's own volition. But I explore the possibility of reclaiming the identity in different ways. The story collection starts off with this title. <clears throat> it starts off with a story called Detour, and it ends with Night Neon, which is a, a novella. And in between, we have other examples of, of women who are imperiled in different ways. So that was the overall guiding principle but each story is is really autonomous and you know stands alone mm -hmm. how did this collection come together was this an intentional uh gathering on your part or did it sort of evolve over time i'm just going to go and get a copy sure yeah <laughs> well like most of my collections it evolves over time but not, not a very long period of time probably just a couple of years mm. the uh the story that really gripped me, uh, I think, and sort of uh, it really made me think about this role of identity was wanting. And I, I don't know if it was the, the Rust Belt setting of Detroit that had something to do with that, uh, but there was sort of a, a very dark undercurrent there. And this, the, the, the question of identity was very strong there. Can you talk a little bit about that particular piece? Well, it's interesting you would choose that because that's the one unmitigated horror story. <laughs> I mean, the woman literally is going to be destroyed and even possibly dismembered. <laughs> so 
she's actually transmogrified into a man's work of art. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of nightmare situation where a man is literally using women's bodies in his his murals and his his work. His work was just considered very experimental, but the woman thinks that she's in control and she has a memory of a time when she thought she knew him when they were all each much much younger in Detroit. She was the wife of a well-to-do person. He was a, a young artist. And so the situations are reversed here. But that's that's the story, as I said, that's the most unmitigated nightmare, probably in the whole in the whole collection. Yes. It, is Detroit a place where you've spent some time? This story really only would take place in Detroit. It's yes, I lived in Detroit for quite a few years, but then I've gone back to visit. Now, today, Detroit is much changed. It's lost much of its population. You can drive for miles and miles and see abandoned houses and buildings and rubble-strewn vacant lots so that it resembles a wartime city or a city in the aftermath of a war. So she's gone back to that part of the world. Like many American cities, Detroit has suburbs that are quite well to do. Mm. So the, there are white suburbs like Gross Point, Bloomfield Hills, and Birmingham that are quite prosperous, but the city in itself, this, the inner city is very devastated. So this woman goes back to visit someone who lives in Gross Point, and then she drives into Detroit in, in a setting that I, that I know very well. Mm. To me, it's like a nightmare, or it's like a dream that couldn't, go in one direction and then another. She sees a a police cruiser driving by and she feels maybe in a way that she's protected. Later on, she thinks, why didn't I I signal that police cruiser? You know, we have a a false sense of being protected in our civilization. We sort of think we're protected, but maybe literally we're not. Mm -hmm. But did you think the story had a kind of hallucinatory Mm -hmm nature to her because she goes by a she's in a building like an arts building galleries and sort of upscale at one point and she thinks she sees someone who actually wouldn't be there any longer I mean some like 20 years before she sort of has these little flashes of or hallucinations that we sometimes have in times of stress Van is such an interesting character, uh, force of antagonism, antagonist, however you, you, you want to clarify that. But, uh, and I think what's really appealing to me about not only your stories and your style is that these, these characters are very multidimensional. And, and at first, it's more of a romantic encounter, and, he, and uh, he's very charismatic, and there's sort of a cat and mouse happening here. Uh, and uh, is that... Is that sort of uh, something, again, that sort of evolves in your, your style of storytelling, or you, do you sort of sketch out your characters ahead of time? Well, I saw him as somebody, the woman feels that she can control him, and she feels attracted to him as a man. Mm. And she also feels attracted to the possibility that he will admire her. Like she wants a man, it says that badly she wants a man. But what she really wants is somebody to admire her and adore her because the man seems like a mirror to her. And I I don't think that's an unusual or even unnatural way to feel. 
we all we all want other people to like us. Other people are like mirrors. If we don't exist, we we have no inner being. We feel we exist with other people. He says at one point, "You don't recognize me, do you, dear?" And she he calls her dear, and he seems to be suddenly somebody that she does remember from the past when she had a lot of a uh, she had the power of a, a husband with a good deal of money, and he didn't have any money. So she sort of guiltily remembers that time, and he keeps calling her dear, almost in an affectionate way of, of a, a predator. And at the end, he allows her to, put, to breathe chloroform of her own volition. In other words, he's going to actually kill her, but he's giving her this gentlemanly alternative that she could kill herself. And she keeps saying, she says, anyone I, I might have hurt, I did not mean to. She's trying to apologize for her past life. Mm -hmm. And it might also be some sense of guilt in terms of class consciousness too, that at one time she had a good deal of money and he didn't. And the whole city of Detroit is kind of sinking beneath uh, poverty and drug drug addiction. So the story just ends that her wanting is ending. The title of the story is Wanting. And I was thinking of the Buddhist idea that we are always uh, in the sort of locked into the wheel of desire and wanting and yearning. And we have to break free of that wheel, that cycle of, of desire. So at the end, the terrible wanting has ceased. I find it really interesting too that you you called it unmitigated horror. Uh, th there seems to be what I believe is a false dichotomy between what's considered literary fiction and what's considered genre fiction. Uh, what's your opinion on the on those labels or those distinctions? Well, I um, I'm looking around here for a book that is here. This really crosses the line. This is Edith Wharton's Ghost Stories. They're beautifully written. They're very, very carefully written. And they're also almost like investigations into the sociological milieu of Lawton's time. Her ghosts are the ghosts of people who have lived and died very rarefied lives. In a typical Wharton story, you will be taken to an old manor house like an old beautiful estate on the Hudson River, for instance. And in that house will be a whole platoon of servants, but there will probably be one woman who is a widow or she's a wife whose husband travels a lot and leaves her behind. And this woman is really isolated and marooned among her, her kind because of her social position. She can't be friendly with the servants, and yet she's surrounded only by servants, like other people of her social class live far away or they may be in New York City. So this line between living like that and becoming a ghost in Wharton is, is pretty subtle. You know, like the stories are, are really sort of frightening for a woman to read because there are women who are married and they have social position and they have money. 
but yet they're so isolated and lonely and the ghosts come to them. I mean, it's like they're living the life, they're living like a ghost life. So that's a very literary kind of, of fiction. The sentences are elegant and long, like Henry James's. And my writing tends to be almost purely contemporary. And I don't, I mean, sometimes I read a whole novel set in the 19th century, but th these are all contemporary stories. And for instance, one of them is very timely, parole hearing uh, California Institution for Women at Chino, California. That's really a parole hearing of one of the Manson girls. Yes. And that was only a couple of years ago that she came up for her parole hearing. I don't give a name to her. In the story, she's a kind of uh, composite figure. So that's relatively recently. I think it was the 50th anniversary of the Manson murders just a couple of years ago. So she is now, this person literally, I mean, right in, in real life, she's the oldest woman incarcerated in the California prison system, which I thought was interesting. So my story is her plea to the parole hearing board. And as she keeps talking, she's trying to say how it wasn't her fault and other people did this. And maybe the person they killed didn't deserve to live. And she gets going on that. Who would be Sharon Tate? Because she was so beautiful. She doesn't deserve to live. Leave no one left alive there. These are all things that Charles Manson said. He said, do it gruesome. Those are his words. Leave no one alive there, he said. And they wrote in blood, the blood of their victims, death to pigs. So all this is kind of put together in a composite in my story. I have read this story aloud. It's kind of chilling because- it is. <laughs> Starts off pleading for her parole, and I'm so innocent, and I've learned, I'm, I'm sorry, and my remorse, and and you know, like as it goes on and we get deeper into it, she actually has not changed at all. Right. <laughs> you just, I leave you with my curse, death to pigs. She sort of gets the realization she's not going to get a parole, and so she's got this curse. And I, I just think that's that. I think the story is just a mirror of life i mean i don't think i'm making anything up at all yeah it, it was that was fascinating because you kind of lured me in with with her plea uh to the parole board and and being very contrite and and apologetic and then it's just slowly starts to turn and you can feel it and and there's these little lines that come in where well you're like wow she really she really isn't sorry she's just realizing that she's not going to be able to talk her way out of prison yeah, I'm sure that the motives that bring people into prison, especially when they were very violent crimes, are still there. And what the remorse is the expression of they're very sorry they got caught. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's basically sure. They feel remorse. They just want to get out. You know, maybe they won't commit a crime again. Maybe that's true. But on the other hand, they have committed these gruesome crimes and other people have died. Mm. So that story doesn't you know, have any ghosts or supernatural elements in it at all. Yet there's something very horrific about it. 
Yes, and and you have a, a new novel coming out next month called Breathe, and you're it's described as a partly intimate, detailed love story and part horror story rooted in real life. So it feels like you're uh, kind kind of blurring those lines in this upcoming book too. Yes, yes. After we suffer extreme losses of people whom we love, we are pretty much haunted by them, and the word haunted could be analyze you know like is a ghost a phantasmagoric figure that haunts somebody out of the woods or a cemetery or a house or is a ghost an element of your own imagination and memory so that you keep remembering and remembering and remembering all the phases of having known the person and like when you first met the person and then maybe in a hospital and maybe when the person has died, you know, we are all haunted by our memories. And I, I very much write about that. The determination both to be faithful to the beloved and to survive the trauma of loss. And I, and I think that regardless of your age or situation or circumstances, uh, that's, that's always a difficult situation, uh, you know, to, to sort of want to preserve those fond memories and also deal with your own trauma. And, uh, and that's not easily done. Yes. I don't think there's any actual solution. And now in, in the, our era of COVID-19, when more than 600,000 Americans have died who might not have died for years and years. I mean, the premature deaths, every death brings with it so so many people who are mourning. So we're, we're all haunted. Maybe the whole world now will be haunted by these ghosts of people who died prematurely or even unnecessarily. And I know I feel totally, I feel totally haunted by my own memories. So I'm sort of led to do busy things. I sign up for activities like a summer writing session and teaching. And when I'm teaching, I'm totally immersed in the student's work. And I don't have time for the haunting experience. When I'm all alone, that's when I'm sort of a prey to these memories. So I try to keep busy by working and and doing other things. Uh, Speaking of other things, I I would... Uh, very curious to know how, what the role of running has been in your writing career. I know you, you were, uh, you ran a lot <laughs> as I do. And uh, I'd love to hear your take on that. Oh, well, the running is very wonderful. I mean, I, I still run and walk as walk as fast as I can, but, um, yeah, I, I've always done that. I mean, that's, a, that's nothing new. It's sort of part of my life running, especially in the country road, it's very much a part of, of writing also. I think of my writing and, and work on problems, but it's a kind of just exhilaration of the body. I think it's a reward and maybe bicycling. So we here in Princeton have had a lot of heat. So we can't really go out running much or walking during the day. And so we try to go out at in the evening, but then a lot of gnats in the air. So I think our quality of life in the United States is being kind of corroded because apart from that many 
many parts of the country have polluted air, uh, you know, many hundreds or thousands of miles away from the fires, the winds carry the pollutants and the air is contaminated. It's a kind of haze even in New York City, evidently from the fires out in the West, which is really frightening. Mm. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Do you, when you go for a walk or a run or uh, you're bicycling, are you consciously thinking about a, a characterization or a plot problem? Or do these things just kind of emerge as you're in the physical activity? Well, I think about what I'm working on. Mm. I may be working on something all day. I'm looking out the window and I'm just sort of thinking that a groundhog is in my garden. <laughs> I have, there's a huge groundhog. I mean, huge. <laughs> lives out there and sometimes he comes waddling out he's so big he's like this enormous and and then when i go out later a plant will all be eaten except right down to the very tip i'm just sort of watching the scene i don't see him now i saw a whole lot of thrashing but that could be birds there are rabbits too and i saw a whole lot of baby rabbits which is a a sign, I guess, of rabbits to come. Yes. <laughs> so, so running is is. I mean, if you're a runner, you know what it's like. You're you're processing your own work, and it's like a meditation. Mm. Is that how you feel? Yes, a hundred percent. Sometimes I go out with a, a problem that I want to kind of fix, and other times I'll just be running, and something will come to me. But it, it, it's typically something that doesn't come until I'm well into the activity. Uh, it doesn't come in the beginning. It doesn't come at the end. It's all, like you said, it's almost like you're deep into a, a, a moving meditation where things start to emerge. Yeah, and it's a kind of interesting situation for me because I feel that I would like to be with someone because I, I would, if I'm alone, I may feel melancholy or sad. Mm -hmm. But then if I'm with someone and talking, then I don't really have these good thoughts. <laughs> you know, I, I really need to be alone to think about what I'm writing. But then there's also like the fear of being alone. And when you go running, are you alone? I am. And you're just sort of thinking about your thoughts. Yeah. 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 And sometimes I have an agenda. Sometimes I don't. And uh, but, you know, you I think you too, you get your breathing into a certain place and you get a, a rhythm going and that's when your mind, you know, you sort of release some of those physical sensations and, and you become more cerebral. And that's, so I, I, I do it every day. I love it. What time of day do you do it? I usually run uh, very early in the morning. Uh, like you said, before it gets too warm and our humidity is, is too oppressive, I try and run very early. Last week I was in Saratoga Springs, New York, which is upstate New York. And it's quite, it's quite beautiful. It's kind of an older city or like a sm really small city, <clears throat> or maybe it's a town, you know, it's not really a big metropolis at all. So I was waking pretty early, like 5.30, and I would go out running around 7 or 7.30, and there was almost nobody out, maybe a few people walking dogs. The air was very fresh, and I could run past these houses with beautiful gardens. So that was like 7, 7.30, I'd come back around 8, 8.30 or so. And that's ideal. But here in Princeton, where I have so much to do at home, I, I basically don't, I need the morning for the work. And so I basically go to my desk as soon as I can and start working on something. So I used to always go out in the afternoon, you know, like around two or three o'clock 
that was the ideal time. And when I was married, my husband and I would go out walking at that time mm. every day in the woods. We went hiking a good deal. But now <clears throat> it's so it's so hot at that time of day. I can't really I can't really go out. And then in the evening, a lot of these little mats are out. So it's a different, slightly different world. But I guess we always have to adjust. True. Everything's always <laughs> changing. Uh, you, you mentioned getting the work done in the morning. Uh, I think I read in an interview one time that uh, you, you write everything in longhand first. Uh, is that still your process? Oh, yeah. I have all these, I have all these sheets of paper. I mean, little notes, you know, like... I could be traveling somewhere and I'll scribble out something. And then I come back home and have a lot of, uh, like a whole pile. I just have a, <laughs> a whole pile of notes that, that I've taken <laughs> when I was traveling or away from my desk or something. So I bring them back and <clears throat> I put them all together. <clears throat> and then I sort of assemble them into something like a first draft. And some of the notes are for structure and some are like descriptions of people. And when do you know that those notes are going to become a short story versus a novella versus a novel? Oh, well, the novel, a novel is a very big undertaking. Like this is supposed to be a poem. I've scribbled this poem on the back of an envelope and I have to work on that sometime. And this is another poem I've, I've already, Sometimes they're already written. I just have to go to the computer and kind of um, put them together. So I have a huge pile. I mean, I won't try to show it to you, but it's a huge <laughs> pile of, on my desk of <clears throat> things in various states. Some are just rough notes. Some are more polished. Some are almost finished. It's a matter of applying it, putting it down here on my desk and actually working with the word processor. And sometimes I feel that I'm not ready, you know, that I'm too nervous or anxious. So I want to take more notes or go for a run. And in the basement of my house, it's a pretty finished basement. I can run actually there. Oh. Well, it's a fairly large space. I mean, I could run around. I could put some music on. So if it was really hot and the house is, house is air-conditioned, I could actually run, you know, it's not like a gym, it's not a big gym or anything, but it's an area where I could run like in a circle or something if worse came to worse. What kind of music do you like to listen to when you run? Well, I, I really only listen, I try just to listen to classical music, mm. especially piano music. I do like bluegrass and I like ballads, English and Scottish ballads. Mm. I like jazz. Mm. And, you know, folk music of the 1960s or earlier earth, almost anything except pop music I, I don't really listen to. Probably my favorite listening to music would be piano music by Chopin or Litz, uh, some Mozart, but more, more Chopin, the beauty, the beauty sort of prose poetry of the short Chopin pieces they're quite short. Some of them, like the preludes, are only about one minute long, two minutes, three minutes long. They're sort of analogous to short stories, those little preludes. Nocturnes are a little longer. And that kind of music I find very 
haunting and evocative, not distracting, but all the kind of music if it had lyrics to it, I would be sort of listening to the lyrics. Right. And like a Bob Dylan, a Bob Dylan song has lyrics that are very specific. And you, he's like sometimes telling a story that in, in, oh, it's a rabbit that's out there. I saw a little bunny run out. I think they were eating my uh, sweet basil. <laughs> and I have, I have tomatoes and peppers. They were certainly doing something, but it's too late now. <laughs> so anyway, um, I like a lot of music. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I listen to some movie scores for the same reason. Uh, it's atmospheric, but it's not distracting with uh, with lyrics or vocals. And so it allows me to uh, tap into that creative side and not be distracted by it. Yes, and there's um, Spanish guitar music. Mm, yes. Which is very striking, and there's a lot of repetition. The sort of music that Philip Glass composes that's re repetitive, it has little changes, but it's basically the same thing over and over again. That's that's very beautiful and and, and haunting. Yes, yes, wonderful. Well, uh, Joyce, as we kind of uh, pull the conversation to a close, I, I have a, a very open-ended question for you, and uh, there's no right or wrong. I would just love to get your opinion on it. Um, you've been part of the publishing industry for a long time, and, and there have been a lot of changes, especially over the past five or ten years. Um, if you had a crystal ball, uh, what, what does the future of publishing or writing look like in a, in a couple of years? Oh, just in a couple of years? I don't think it will be too different from oh, what it is. Yeah, okay. During the, well, during the pandemic, people were reading quite a bit. Mm -hmm. and they were, I think they were buying books. I, I mean, I haven't the statistics right at hand, but I don't think publishing is in dire um, danger right this minute, you know. I think people were much more concerned about the future at the turn of the century, like when it became 2000, there was a lot of talk about everything becoming eBooks and losing literature. I do remember people being concerned around the year 2000. Um, I think now we're just so concerned about the future of the planet, you know, that, that the future of publishing a marketing book seems a small subtext in that larger concern. Like, are we living now in a time when nature is going to turn against us, where there will be successions of viruses because of the global warming? Are there going to be more and more uh, virulent bacteria and amoeba, amoebas that sort of prey on human beings so that we're constantly trying to develop a vac new vaccines and combating new viruses. Is this, is this going to be what, we, what our civilization starts doing, you know, trying to survive? I mean, I have no idea. I'm hoping that I'm wrong, but that seems to be such a large concern so that writing and art and music is a smaller concern within that. So JD, I was thinking about you when she was talking about running and I know Zach is doing a lot of biking. She talked about biking too, but uh, JD, what, what, what was your experience with, what is your experience with running and writing? Well, for, first off, I think writers just aren't allowed to retire. I mean, she's 80, 83 years old and she's still writing. She's out there, you know, it must keep writers young, you know, like she's running, she's biking, she's doing all these things. Um, I, I use it for the same reason. I think a lot of other authors do. I, I try to figure out what I'm going to do next. You know, I, I, 
kind of write myself into a lot of corners. Um, and I, when I go out on five miles and I do like a walk run kind of combination thing, I just try to figure out how to get out of that corner. Um, you know, right now I'm plotting out my, my next book. So, you know, I just, as I, as I go, people will, will see me mumbling to myself. Sometimes I'm talking into my watch. Um, so my, my, my watch just for the sake of clarity here, like it's one of those Apple watches and I just use the memo function on there. Um, because any, anything I record on there automatically transfers over to my Mac. So I just kind of take notes as I go. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all, it's all about that. Um, when she was talking about it, I love the fact that like, she was just so observant, you know, you could just tell that she was just picking up on every little thing that was going on around her while she was on these walks. And, you know, that's, it really kind of gives you a glimpse into her, you know, how she pieces things together. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but did you just say when you're plotting your next book? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying the outline thing. Um, <laughs> Here's the thing. So I, I finished up the book that I'm working on now, or I'm, I'm basically in the home stretch. I'm, I'm writing, you know, like the, all the action just wrapped up, and now I'm just kind of doing the little cool off period with the characters to, you know, to get to that that last page. Um, but I ended up at 166,000 words. Um, at least 30,000 of those are going to have to come out. And I want to get this book down to like somewhere in the 120 to 130 range. Um, and a lot of that was just me trying to feel out, you know, the story, figure out where I want to go. I mean, there was a lot, you know, we talked earlier, I, I took a you know, 20, 30,000 word chunk and just chopped it out and, and kept going. And, you know, th this book, I've been working on it for a very long time. I mean, if, it, in consecutive days, like if, if I, you know, had an outline, I mean, I've, I've written both ways at this point. Um, I can knock out a book with an outline in two to three months um, with very little, you know, changes or anything. You know, it's basically start to finish. Um, but, you know, going to this, this method, you know, just pantsing my way through it. You know, there's just too many cutting, too many words on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Well, in, in all sincerity, like I, th I think a middle ground is probably not a bad approach. I know that you're not a hardcore plotter, but you're not completely writing. You're not completely pantsing either. So, uh, that middle ground, you know, hopefully that'll that'll work out for you. Um, well, we'll, we'll see. Check check back in another six months, and we'll see where yeah. we're at on, on the current <laughs> see, one. <laughs> see how, see if how, how far along you are. Yeah, uh, Zach, I know uh, Joyce Carol Oates is not necessarily the name you associate with horror, but she writes some really good dark stuff. Uh, what were your thoughts on sort of her perspectives on horror and genre in general? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I have, you know, full disclosure, like I haven't read that collection, but I'm definitely, uh, I'm definitely intrigued after what, after, um, after hearing you talk about it with her. So, cause it's, that stuff sounded pretty, pretty dark. I think at one point she used the word dismemberment, which I was like, oh, okay, that's right up, that's right up my alley. So, <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's, it sounded, it, it sounded awesome. Like sounded really, really interesting and like a really good spin and take on it. Yeah, I mean, she. One of my favorite things about her, and I've I've been reading her, you know, pretty much my entire life. Um, her character development is just unreal. Um, these people are so real when you're reading these stories. You have to wonder whether she's basing them on actual people in her life, or life, or you know, she's just putting them together like the rest of us do. Um, but that's the one thing that I really take away from from reading her her books. Um, I, I like the fact that she writes in longhand and you know when I, I mentor people a lot of times I'll ask them to change it up you know if somebody has trouble finding their voice you know working on a Mac I'll ask them to try that try writing it out in longhand 
um, you're going to find that if you change the way that you actually create the story, your voice actually changes and the pacing of the story, everything along those lines changes as well. So if you write a book in longhand, you write it on a typewriter, you write it on a, you know, on a computer, um, if you dictate it, and any one of those things will completely change your voice around. Um, and a lot of people aren't necessarily open to trying those those different things, but I really feel everybody should at least once. Um, with dictation in, in particular, it's, it's difficult to get used to that, but you know, your word count will skyrocket um, if, if you can pull it off. Um, it's a fantastic way to write books and one where you can knock them out very quickly. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I, I do a lot of dictation. Like that's, I'll do walks where I dictate my books and stuff and then also do walks that are just quiet, you know, going back to talking about that for a minute, um, where I can plot stuff out and all that. But, uh, and I've, I've like, I've always wanted to write a book longhand, but I'm just the back end process of that. I'm just so, I just don't want to like get all that onto the computer and I'm, you know, um, I, I can't pay anybody yet so to, to transcribe it for me. So uh, I, I, I need to hit number four in New York Times bestseller list first, I guess. But um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like I, I but but I see what you're saying, like with dictation, um, you know, it definitely like it, it changes my voice some. And I and, but, and I'm curious what doing that with a with longhand would do, like how much it would change my voice. I've actually used it um, when I'm writing books that I weave together. So like in Fourth Monkey, um, I wrote the diary. A lot of that was written in longhand. Um, oh, and I, pur- cool. I purposely did that, and the rest was written on just on on my Mac because um, it, it changed the voice, you know, the the character and the, the speaking and the tone and everything was a little bit different. So that's another way that you can utilize it if you use the different methods for different characters. You know, sometimes that's helpful too. This is this is somewhat related. Uh, <laughs> Um, I know that a number of the authors who I've interviewed for this podcast have talked about writing longhand and the transcription is part of the revision process. So I don't, I don't necessarily know if you'd ever want to, you know, pay someone or, or have that done because, um, they've saying like, you know, transferring is, is, is almost like a revision. That makes uh, sense. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm pretty sure that's, that's what Joyce does. And, and I wanted to add too, uh, I, I don't know if this came across in the interview, but I felt like Joyce Carol Oates is one of the most confident artists I've ever spoken to. I I don't know if it's her experience, if it's if it's how she's wired or um, or what it is. But like I, I just felt like she was so grounded and she had such an understanding of what her version of the craft was that um, to me I, I just soaked it up. Like I, she was extremely wise and extremely confident, and I, I learned so much from that interview. Yeah, honestly, I was envious that you got to talk to her on video and you got to see her office, you know, because so many really cool books have come out of that office and, and you kind of got a glimpse of it. So like the, the writer nerd in me was, you know, like, hey, <laughs> why, why didn't Jay post the video for at least the rest of us to see? Um, but yeah, I mean, she's she's been teaching for a big portion of her career, um, which is huge. I don't know how much of that she, she still does. Um, but, you know, if, if you get the chance to see her talk live um, or teach a class and anything along those lines, you, you should jump all over it, even if it's not you know, if she's not somebody you typically read, um, you know, pick up one of her books. I mean, the, the character development, like I had mentioned, is fantastic. You know, she goes off in some of the scariest, darkest places. I, like, if you pick, if you saw her sitting in Starbucks, you know, just with a, a, a cup of coffee, like, you, you would never, ever even suspect that some of these thoughts come out of this woman's head. And, and that, to me, is what makes it so fascinating. Yeah, and I, I think, too, uh, you, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. She has a master class. So if you if you wanna uh, if you wanna check out her masterclass, it's, I I took it when it first came out. It's extremely well done, 
and, and so I would really encourage folks to to check that out if uh, if you like her style. All I right. just want to add that I'm, yeah. s- I'm, I'm so glad that I was able to teach myself to write to music with lyrics. So every <laughs> every time I hear someone else say they can't do it, I'm just like, I conquered that. <laughs> <laughs> I have not. <laughs> I made a valiant effort to do it because I wanted to be able to, and now it doesn't bother me at all. So. I I, I could never do it. Those lyrics would definitely come out in in dialogue and it just, it it totally distracts me. I'm I'm with Jay. Like I I can listen to um, movie soundtracks, I think are are fantastic for that kind of thing. And there's some phenomenal, like creepy stuff out there. Like we were talking before we started recording, Millennium is probably one of my all time favorite TV shows. Um, But the soundtracks for that show were were really, really good. And there's only a couple CDs I still own that I I listen to, you know, because for the most part, I can tell our, you know, little device from from Amazon what I want to listen to. But, you know, those CDs. I, I, I've constantly had, you know, as, as a writer and I pop them in. Um, otherwise, I just listen to a, a, a thunderstorm soundtrack just as white noise. But yeah, yeah, I usually listen to like soundtracks, like usually video game soundtracks and stuff. But I definitely have playlists with music with lyrics. And I think part of it for me is that I worked in retail spaces for so long where like the same songs would play all the time and I was able to tune it out. And I think that that's part of what happens now is I'm just subconsciously like it's there, but I'm kind of also tuning it. I don't know. But anyways, that's kind of like what I do with my wife. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, she doesn't like listen to the podcast. So it's not going to get me in trouble. Uh, is, are you sure she's not just staying right across from you right now in the living room? <laughs> then You're, maybe I am in trouble. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I hope <laughs> the plant doesn't tell anybody. So. so JD, who's on the on the docket for next week? All right, so next week we've got Hugh Howie coming back. Um, and this is going to be very cool because, you know, they're in the middle of filming um, Wool, you know, based on his, his collect. Uh, how many books are in that, that series? Three, I think. Five. Um, three, yeah. Oh, and it depends I, and on I, how you divide them up, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, because I, I had an Three on, volumes. Yeah. Okay, and yeah. I, think, I think he just started a new one. Um, but the last I checked, I, I saw a tweet from him where he mentioned that he just toured the, the sets for the show. Um, so they were like a day away from actually starting principal photography. So th- this is happening or it's, it's, it's really close. And he, he was willing to come back on the air and kind of tell us how, you know, what it took to get it to this point. Um, and it sounds like he may come back a couple times in between to, to kind of fill us in. So I know a lot of people are, are very fascinated about this, this process, you know, myself in, included, um, you know, just, it, it's, there's so much work involved in getting something from, from book to screen. It's insane. Um, so to hear that, you know, something is actually getting there and get a little peek behind the curtain, I think it's going to be fantastic. All right, well, let's take it on out of here. To our listeners, make sure you go to writersingpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.